0: I use the saw to split the pelvis, and I use the gut hook to open up the cavity, and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out. Right, so uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple, very easy, and the the knife is sharp. And uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So. Um, Take a look at the Razer Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase.
1: Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and
2: rural real estate, this is the podcast for you.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Land Lakes Podcast. We're your hosts Adam, Keith, Matt Dyes here, and uh, we're gonna open up in part number two of our Prescribed Fire series. Um, As we're kind of amping up into February today, recording February sixth. this is like podcast 285, Prescribed Fire, uh, Burning in the Timber. Um, we've got a bunch of different parts. I don't even think we've completely composed exactly how many parts of this series we're going to have because we're going to have to get into another series on our other podcasts uh, this week. Or not this week, but sometime soon. Um, but we have going to have Kyle and Frank come on and discuss a lot of things Um that they've used prescribed fire, that one's going to be pretty in-depth and going to be jam-packed with great information. Uh, But Matt and I are going to cover something today that uh, is one of the probably most talked about uh, forms of prescribed fire that we cover. But before we get into that, we want to bring back the workshops, habitat workshops. We launched those last week, Uh, put them on our store. And we've had great, great feedback. A lot of guys discussing and, and telling us they're going to see us there. I've uh, had some orders come through. We're going to be in Michigan. Matt, you got the dates. Not in front of me right oh, now. Okay. But I, I believe it's June
2: 23rd through the 25th.
1: Um, and then the, the July 25th through the 27th, I believe.
2: Matt, um, I'm sorry, we had that backwards. June oh. 25th through the 27th. That makes July 23rd the 25th in Alabama and then the June date is in Michigan
1: yep so one of them is just south of Birmingham 45 minutes the other one is just west of Grand Rapids in Michigan so we're going to yes. be up there for you guys in the north and down south for you guys over in Alabama Mississippi Georgia area so um and and I, I will say Matt because I've had a couple guys ask like what in the world one guy asked in particular he's like you guys are in you guys are in uh in Missouri and you can't even have a workshop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a workshop <laughs> this is just They're a kinda... start. We're planning on doing several workshops, hopefully multiple workshops every single year. This first year we may add more dates, but we didn't because we're still kind of playing out the pandemic, which states are going to be open, which states are going to be closed, trying to find the appropriate farms. We're not going to be a workshop where you always come to us. We are trying to make them regionally based so we can hit those areas. So um, if cool. you're that's like, well, cool. I don't really want to travel to Michigan, um, maybe hold off because we may be coming. We may add a date this summer that's closer. Um, or, I mean, every, every one of them is going to be a little different because obviously there's different things things, different management techniques that are going to happen in Michigan that are going to happen down south and totally different stress periods. So those are going to be different, uh, a different approach. So uh, we're looking forward to it, but know that there's going to be more in the future. You know, we are doing the uh, NDA, formerly QDMA Habitat Module in northern Missouri. That's in June, right, Matt? That
2: is. That would be June
1: 11th through the 12th
2: in north Missouri. So that one's actually a kind of a uh, deal with NDA and on and we're gonna be doing hunting property evaluation. So basically start to finish of how we evaluate a property. This is a really neat farm, a lot of cool aspects to it, but um even even our workshops that'll be in Michigan, Alabama, you know, we wanna specifically to come to your region so we could teach you in, in let's say your habitat what makes sense to you guys not always just come to missouri but like adam said earlier we're gonna be floating around this is this is just year one of workshops so um we're not quite close enough to you hopefully the next year we'll, we'll be there in your region but we will be moving around the country um and hitting different regions kind of strategically but for first year this is what we're going to roll with and so far the response has been good i've been, been very happy with, with people signing up and um, getting on board. So hopefully we'll see everyone
1: there. Yep, for sure. Um, also, uh, shout out to First Light, who helps make this podcast happen every single week. First Light, guys, if you haven't tried it, uh, looked them up, figured out kind of what, what makes them different, uh, you need to. Matt and I have been wearing it now for a couple of seasons, and I know we uh, we couldn't be happier a lot of really awesome. We're wearing a lot of it during the consulting season as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can officially say the Buckhorn pants are phenomenal. Sawbucks. Sawbucks, Sawbucks yes. Sawbucks. Great pants. Amazing. Briar pants. Um, man, I've been wearing them now on uh, several consults. Here's the
2: thing, though, too. You say briar pants, but, you know, like when, when I was young growing up, like when I got into a pair of briar pants or, you know, like built-in, chaps into the pants it was always like oh man these are like stiff and i can't like hardly walk when i get out of them it's like all right cool i'm putting like jeans back on these though aren't that at all they're super comfortable and they're they're not like overly stiff yeah but they're protective at the same time it's a really great combination
1: i honestly would think about feels like a corrugate pant with the with the briar a stiffer yes. front. And I honestly, now I'm looking at going in, you know, maybe I'm going to get rid of these corgit pants and just get more Sawbucks. Because uh, they're, not, they're not heavy. No, no. But,
2: man, they're just all around a fantastic pant for outside working and, and walking. I for love For sure.
1: Them. Yeah. So check them out at FirstLight.com. Okay. Uh, yes. Prescribed fire follow-up. You know, last week,
2: Adam, we talked about all the tools you needed to get started with prescribed fire. And I, and I hope that that was a good foundation, you know, to build off of for the coming weeks, because most people think, Oh my gosh, fire, you got to have all this and that. And really the tools are very simple. So if you didn't pick up on that last week, make sure you go back and, and download that podcast right down the list. And really that's the tools that we use to burn with and how we would be approaching a timber burn, which is what we're talking about this week. I think, Adam, though, it's very important to talk about the various goals that someone may have when they're trying to burn their timber. Yes. So,
1: yes. if
2: you will, what would be like in a top kind of three goals most people, most landowners would fall into if they were burning
1: their timber? Well, I think a lot of times people would say, I want to burn the timber because I want to create, I I know I need to burn. A lot of people were like, I know I need to burn. A a lot of people tell me I need to burn. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of them burn for the very reason that you and I probably don't burn as much. Um, but a lot of them think I need to burn to, to kind of control the brush. Um, and then at the same time I need to burn because, um, I I know it's It's good for the wildlife. Yeah. And, yeah. and for so those are the typical ones that I hear a lot from landowners and, and listeners and uh interactions on social media. I think for me, a big part I I'll I'll say my goals for burning timber are promote more understory growth, control invasives or at least knock them back. Mm-hmm. And improve diversity of mm-hmm. my acreage. And by yes. improving, I guess sub sub uh, title of that last one, improved diversity would be promote not only herbaceous forbs, but grasses, sedges, shrubs, but also oak regeneration. And that yes. is very much a fine tune where you can't burn too often, but you need to burn some to try to encourage that next generation of oaks uh, to grow. Absolutely. And so those are my goals, the the big three.
2: W- yeah, no that that's definitely hits hits a lot of the good points. I think that we need to bring up when we're talking about burning timber because I, I think a lot of people use it. Um, I would say I would say for the wrong goals or the wrong purposes like you said early on was they want to clean up the brush where yeah. we really are on the exact opposite side of the spectrum saying no I want to promote a denser understory I want that to come back and yeah. we'll get into this later on but that also is a function of how much sunlight's getting in. Not necessarily we just clean it up, and yeah. and a lot of other people are like, well, I've got a lot of leaves, and 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 I'm just going to burn and, and reduce the tick habitat and this and that. And it's like okay, there's that shouldn't be the only purpose of burning. Like yeah. that that's you're, if that's the goal, you've missed the point of of burning all the other benefits that you can have with with a, a functional fire. And I think the other aspect is that people kind of misunderstand with fire though. And we talked a little bit about last week, how fire doesn't really discriminate, right? If it's burning through something, usually it just kind of moves or goes around something, you know, whatever, it just, it doesn't really discriminate. But I think that would make people think that fire, um, is a very general, broad tool. But however, the timing and then the way you apply fire to the landscape can be a very fine tool. Like you, you can do a lot of, let's say, detail work with it if it's applied appropriately. Yeah. And so, like you know, it has this broad spectrum feel if you want to u- utilize it that way. But you can also get very detailed um, and utilize fire in different ways as you get more advanced and i think honestly when people continue to listen to the podcast series especially when kyle and frank will talk about it they'll pick up on that they will pick up and say oh wow this isn't just like all my 50 acres i burned in this one unit is okay it's all black it's all burned like it doesn't have to just be like burnt you know what i mean like there's much finer points throughout that 50 acres that you could use the fire for, but so you, what were the three goals again?
1: Uh, so I want to improve diversity. I want to, um, I want to control invasives. Yep. And I also want to, um, what was that third one?
2: I think, I think you said promote an understory. Yeah. Promote. And then I think the fourth, fourth one, or maybe three B would have been promote Oak regeneration. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and so I want to say something before I forget, since we're just at the beginning. For the guys listening and that are like, oh, I'm going to burn, I'm going to burn, I'm going to burn, and you guys are all excited, here is one thing that I've had to stress over and over and over and over and over. It's just constant. If you haven't done any thinning, In the timber, if you haven't done any bedding thickets, micro clear cuts, and your timber areas, or even a specific timber unit, has not been thinned so it's, for the most part, 80% or more closed canopy, fire probably shouldn't be used there first. I would say that's not the first phase of
2: the project, right? I think you could be very disappointed with the results. And, and, And we see this so much like again fire is a great tool but it needs to fall let's say in place or more um or or in order of of different steps throughout the habitat management process it's it's not like necessarily if you have a 100 percent closed canopy your introductory tool to say i'm making a giant improvement because with no sunlight you don't get that regeneration that's that's the big point of utilizing prescribed fires diversifying and creating that rich rich understory that lots of wild game can benefit from but but really just burning off leaf litter man that that doesn't have much result when you have 100 percent or close to 90 you know 90 plus percent closed canopy that it's just you're almost
1: if your goals are improved cover improved forage And you're burning on a two to three year burn rotation and it's closed canopy, you're ultimately hurting. Uh, You're taking steps away from reaching Mm -hmm. your goals. You're headed the other direction. It is creating, um,
2: it's not permanent, but it is creating a park like setting. Like, all it is is, and I'm air quoting, like that type of practice would be cleaning things up. And I say that facetiously um it's really just decreasing the habitat value if you don't feed that system afterwards and you feed it with light um and and you know this is one of the questions you know later on in the podcast but it's come up early right one one of the big questions i get or uh, we get let's just say through social media is like should i do tsi before or after i burn like that always comes up and, you know, people are kind of sometimes worried about, you know, the the debris, right? The treetops, the, tree tops, the um, trees down on the ground will fire work, will it carry through there? It'll be too hot, too much fuel. So while we're on it, I think we ought to just hit that question um, and give our old famous answer. It depends. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I think it really, it really, really does depend on. What is the prescription? What is the, how, how how
1: dense are you going? Or, you know, how, how heavy what of a time of the year is it? Yeah, Are absolutely. you in the middle of, uh, if, if deer season's over and it's December and you're like, you know what? I've got some time. Should I burn it now? I'd say no. Run a chainsaw for a month right. and a half and then burn it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's if it's early March and you're like, oh, I'd like to burn it, I'd say burn it and then come back in the summer and start. Or if you're, you know, if you don't really want to get it after it runs chainsaw during the summer, then burn it and then come back in the next winter and TSI it. Like it's really yep. just, there's, I would say there's no wrong way. As long as the work is done. I, I would say as both, as long as both steps happen,
2: I really I, I don't get super picky about the order necessarily. Yeah. Um. Because it's like, wow, we've seen we've seen results of thinning. Um. And no no follow up prescribed fire. Sure, it's decent, but it's like, man, that thing need that that wood lot or those acres need fire bad. It's kind of like the, like the whole you know clear cut thing, right? It's really great for five six seven years, and it's like go. Oh
1: nothing happened
2: so now it's kind of crummy now yeah. now we have a, a mess on our hands
1: now we're talking like, either we gotta we gotta mulch it up we gotta run chainsaws we it, may yeah. have to spray it there's some sort of major labor when we could have just hit it two years after it was clear cut with a fire and kept it at bay uh, uh-huh uh-huh
2: again it's it's that multi-step process fire is fantastic but it it for you to get a result that you want, there's got to be sunlight either already coming into that area or you cut it and, you know, you burn it. And then right afterwards, you add the sunlight to get that response either way. Um, let's talk about timing of of burns, um, yep. specifically timber burns. Yep. A lot of lot of theories, a lot of… Yep. Uh, different ways to let's say skin the cat but uh, um, yeah timing what? of
1: timing of burning timber um, man uh, there's so much I think the two categories that most people think of in burning would be growing season or dormant mm-hmm. season I'm gonna burn mm-hmm. in the winter I'm gonna burn in the summer and yep. if I know that I'll probably get an email or a social media message that says no you're wrong about that but um in my experience if it is dry enough to burn timber during the growing season it is red flag and i can if i do not know what i'm doing i can top kill and damage a lot of timber yes and so for me and I believe wholeheartedly that you can manage for timber value and have wildlife. Now, you can't go 100% for timber and 100% for wildlife. You have to understand there's that give and you, take gotta, you got to you got there's give side. and take there, but I definitely think that you can do it. Now, um I would say that burning in your timber 9 times out of 10 to for a successful burn, it needs to be burned during the dormant season, anywhere from January even December, on certain instances, but December through whenever spring green up happens.
2: Yeah, in in your respective area, and and I I'd certainly agree with that. There's there's probably very few instances where you know in a timbered unit. I want to stress timbered unit because we burnt last year in a very mixed um open to a, little, a couple you know a couple trees in in late august
3: yeah. and
2: the goal there certainly was not timber and wasn't to to kill any of the big trees that were in there but it was literally to set back woody aggression underneath some of those yep. and um but in in a timber stand i would certainly rely more heavily on the dormant season um and I know we're, we'll talk about it throughout this podcast, but um, we've had many instances instances in the last couple of years where we're really pushing that envelope of getting to that first little portion of beginning of green up um, just for the fact of, one, the weather cooperated, and then, two, there's different goals and objectives on that specific burn unit that we want to really kind of push the envelope um and get have some things kind of greening up a little bit yep. before we went in and, and, and used fire. So, yeah, in in, in regard to the, the seasons, dormant season is pretty much December, yeah. March, April is pretty much the focus for a yep. timbered unit burn to achieve what you want without risking anything yep. um, from a value killing. killing now,
1: I, I, I'll say timing also. For the difference between, and I'm going to lump two slopes together and the other two together, but east and north slopes versus south and west slopes. Um, East and north can typically have more moisture, better timber um, because of more moisture, and so therefore bigger trees, more canopy, more moisture, all the things that say my burn window the window of time to get a successful burn on those north slopes and east slopes is a lot smaller than south slopes and west slopes, so typically, if i 'm planning on burning a unit that is a that 's dominant by by north slope or east slope, then I will try to burn more in the dormant dormant season and i 'll explain the difference between dormant season and uh, or dormant dormant versus dormant and and a little closer to spring green up. But double dormant. You, you double dormant. I'm talking December, January, early February for those north slopes, and I'm talking uh, I can go December through even early April. And here in southern Missouri, it may change a little bit. Down south, it may not be early April. It may be early March because the green up happens earlier. But in west-facing and south-facing, I can – I mean, we we do it almost every year where – there's starting to be some trees pushing and greening up. There's some undergrowth that's already greening up. But well, because story. it's catching more sun, it is definitely able to dry out so we can carry a fire. So yes. if I've got multiple burn units uh, planned, I'm going to try to burn those north and east-facing slopes earlier in the in the um, winter or earlier in the spring and then do my west and south ones closer to green up and and you know if you are in an area that has a lot of
2: topography changes yeah of course one one burn unit may encompass all of those slopes we're we're just talking preferential here and if i have units that are primarily north and east do them earlier they take the priority over the south and west you can burn those much later into the season comparatively speaking but like around here Again, one one unit or thirty acres probably has aspects on on uh, a lot of different slopes, right? Because just hey, we're in an area that's got quite a bit of topography. Um, but so explain the the dormant, dormant, and dormant.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, when I say dormant dormant I mean in like that December January where there's nothing greening up the only thing you'll find are very small buds forming on some of your trees uh, but dormant but still close to growing season I mean like fescue's greening up it's that window of time in March and early April even up in the northern part of the country it may be early May um, mm-hmm. and that time frame although it is dormant season there's more moisture typically because we start getting those spring rains. Um, and so, like, if you're banking on burning a north slope in in that window of time where things start greening up, I have a, I would say, nine times out of ten or eight times out of ten, you're going to have a very patchy burn, which isn't all bad. But if your goal is to really get that break-to-break break burn, you probably won't have it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean,
2: there's wet seams, little... Um, seeps out of hillsides. It's going to be a smoky fire. On. Yeah, exactly. It's going to simmer. It's going to probably be very slow. But mm-hmm. again, patchy burn, really not that bad for wildlife. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the timing of burns and, and specifically for timbered units. Mm-hmm. A lot of people also ask, okay, if it's timber, then how in the world do I establish a fire line? And, and I think a lot of people may say I have a road over here on this portion of the property. I've, I've got a Creek and a field edge, but really guys, like I'm just trying to get started burning. And that's a hundred acres. Like I, I can't burn a hundred acres. So I wouldn't feel comfortable burning a hundred acres. And I think that's where what hangs up a lot of people is they think, man, I just, I have these fire breaks that I can't really break it up or do smaller portions or patches. Um, but in all reality, we cut our own fire line a lot I and mean, sure we're going to use what makes sense from a field edge and a road system standpoint, but sometimes you just don't have those options yeah. and you, you got to create your own fire break and there's multiple ways of doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that, that, I think that's a big hangup for people they are like always worried about the size and all, oh, it doesn't even matter if I do, you know, two, three, five acres. It's like, well, it certainly isn't going to hurt. You know, yeah. try, try something, but how, how, how do you establish a fire line? What is the desired end result of a fire break?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, in timber for us, uh, the, 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 the main farm we've been working on is, is fortunately got a lot of four-wheeler trails. Um, and so basically if you've got a farm that's got a lot of those four-wheeler trails, it's take a backpack blower and blow the leaves out of it and get it down to bare, bare soil. Um, or Bear Rock if you're here in the Ozarks. Um, and, and so that's a quick way. But if, I'm, if there's no line established, there's no trail established, one of the quickest ways that you can establish a fire line in the timber would be a man running a chainsaw and a man running a backpack blower. And the guy in the front yep. running a chainsaw, he just cuts all the little saplings or brush about the size of a you know five-foot, five-foot wide trail, a little hiking trail. <laughs> Yep. Picture those state parks or national forests that you've been on where there's hiking trails, and you're just like, everybody walks the same one, but you can see that it's, it's about three foot wide, a bare ground, but then um, three or four foot wide bare ground, and then there's another foot on each side or two foot that's been trampled vegetation. That's about – I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's ideal. I would, I would rather have about five foot of bare ground, but you can certainly – burn off of a a trail like that so put a guy in the front running chainsaw and he's cutting everything off uh as close to the ground as he can get without running a a chain on the chainsaw and dulling it up on rocks and then he's kind of kicking stuff out and and then the second guy ideally you've got three guys but the second guy is kind of doing the 80 grit leaf blowing and he's kind of knocking the majority of them off. off. off yeah he's knocking the top off and he's kicking the sticks out of the way and the third guy is 220 grit, and he's finishing it off. And, uh, I mean, you can – if you've got three guys who are just good workers, you can build a lot of line very quickly in oh, t- yeah. closed canopy timber. Oh, um, yeah. If you're in kind of that woodland setting where you've got a bunch of brambles and, and grass and all stuff, yeah, it might take a little longer. You may have to throw a mm-hmm. weed eater man in the mix. Um, but if we're talking burning timber – that's the way one guy running chainsaw one guy running backpack blower and uh
2: it it is amazing how fast that can fly and then Um, i would
1: say this would be my advice once you get that trail cut keep it open with four-wheeler like make sure you're running that trail uh if it's if it's doable not steep as a horse's face um you know run run a four-wheeler on it multiple times in the year so it doesn't grow back in vegetation maybe even throw your herbicide sprayer on when you're spraying food plots and spray all the vegetation that's trying to grow back up in it and establish it as a four-wheeler trail doesn't have to be one you drive in to hunt doesn't have to be one you're driving to check your trail cameras but make sure you keep it open because once you get it established it should be there for many many years to come
2: it's just going to cut down the time and maintenance it's going to take to get fire yeah. fire ready and I think the other thing to keep in mind too is when you are clearing out the fire line itself and you're creating it, let's just say you're walking down you know south to north through, through a piece of timber and you're burning everything to the east or to your right. Throw the debris to your left. Don't build up you know whether it's a treetop or a couple shrubs or or blowing all your leaves. Don't blow it into the fire unit itself blow all the leaf and the litter to the left outside of the fire break. so you don't have this build up of fuel right adjacent to your line that's going to be basically yeah. more fuel than what you're going to burn interior right there adjacent to your actual fire break. so move everything to the left um, or the west of the unit itself and that yeah. way you're reducing that fuel load
1: for sure for sure and be
2: watching for snags so <laughs> when when you're creating those fire breaks someone um, with the chainsaw or, or really any anybody who is looking around on that line keep your eye out from the interior of that unit
1: if if you have uh, the time I'll my advice period. would be to say if you've got the time make it a couple of passes so Man running chainsaw, all he's doing is picking the trail, trying to go in a straight line as much as possible. Anytime you run jags or sawtooths in a line, there's a better chance of of a spot or a fire to ignite yep. on the other side of the fire break and be in the in the unit you don't want to burn. That's called a spot. So try to keep them straight and as as if you're going to have angles, make them as Sway as possible, yeah. where they're very gradual, and you don't do those saltus. Um And so that man running chainsaw, he's just picking the trail and he's cutting it out. He's the uh, he's the trailblazer. There you go. And then the second guy is blowing it out. Once you get done, it's. I would prefer to do the next walk through. Like maybe you walk back, or you get on a four wheeler and you drive it, and that's when you check for snags. Because I have and, been on fire where you're trying to check for snags. And run, run and build the actual line and you miss some. So if you have the time,
2: yeah. do that. <laughs> and, and, and there's two ways you can clean out around snacks. One, if you know which direction and fell it and you can, or you can control where you're felling that tree, fell it, just cut it, put it on the ground or take the leaf blower and blow out a good three-foot, at least, wide swath around the base of that tree where it's not going to burn. Move yeah. all the leaves just like you would with the fire break around from that. And then you don't have to really worry about it catching down the road or w- when you're burning that that unit itself. Just get it gone or cut it flat on the ground.
1: Yep. 100%.
2: So we've got fire breaks Another way, a lot of people, especially down south, there's a lot of forestry roads so the the road systems are in place or um, it's not uncommon for people to bring in um, and have small dozers or skid steers prepping that fire line ahead of time too. That's some big machinery, big equipment. You certainly don't have to go to that degree. Again, we just talked about five foot break of the timber. We burn off that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are other options and from a cost sharing option too through through the nrcs and um equip programs you can get paid to put in permanent fire breaks there actually had we had two clients here local um this past late summer flagged out fire breaks aka road systems and they now have um cost shared road systems of permanent fire breaks around their boundaries of their property and will be burning off of them um this year and so that was done with the dozer so they they can have you know it's kind of a double-edged sword there boundary road system to be able to run up and down plus they have beautiful fire breaks that are going to be maintained and opened up for a long time huge huge asset to be able to use that um basically again lifetime of fire fire breaks created for you and helped to get paid for
1: yes absolutely um yeah, so running with a back chainsaw, backpack blower, hand line as we call them, and everybody mm-hmm. in the history of the world and governments called them hand lines. Um, and then you've got you know doze lines or skitter skitter lines. So another th- another way to establish if you are doing a timber harvest, have some forethought and have your timber uh, your timber crew use making these skitter trails where they're hauling the logs out in the areas that you want to establish fire breaks. Yes, um, and so they can do a lot of the the work and you just have a little bit of cleanup and boom you've got a great established fire break or not or a road system so that's another wonderful way
2: definitely so we've got the goals we got the timing we got how to establish covered the tools last week what about conditions for prescribed fire in the timber what kind of weather conditions would be ideal and and again guys there's a there's a variance here um, a balance, but we're going to kind of set the stage from a, from an ideal, man, I'd like to see this, this three day forecast ahead of my Saturday when I've got guys who said, Hey, put me on call for fire. I want to do it.
1: What does that look like? Um, so for me, um, one of the, the, the two biggest things for selecting weather conditions to burn in timber would be, um, wind speed and amount of sun. Yes. Um yes. you know there's some other factors humidity would also have a huge role but um if i don't have sun even though it may be down around 40 uh percent humidity if it's mix of partly sunny and cloudy i'm like ha, i need sun. Um mm-hmm. so i'm going to select having full sun or at least a large like mostly sunny Weather forecast with wind no more than fifteen miles an hour. I mean cloud cloud cover that percentage.
2: Um, that's where on the, on the weather graph we talked about last week with on uh, NOAA. It, it's super weather. important Gov. to be watching that. Yep. Yeah, it's super super important to be watching what the percentage is because you might start out with a cloudy morning um, or a heavier dew, but then it burns off at you know eleven o'clock. Sun comes out, but it's been windy all day. Really, it dries out, and, and, and you're putting flame on the ground at, at 1 o'clock,
3: and yeah. then it
2: stays sunny, or you could have the exact opposite. You get up and you're like, yeah. wow, it looks like a great burn day, feels like a great burn day, and then clouds roll in, and it just absolutely shuts it down. Yeah. And, that, and that stuff happens, but in an ideal world, you want sun.
1: Yep. I'm looking at, happen. you know, I just went to weather.gov, plugged in my hometown not far from the family farm and i plugged it in and and i looked at fire weather so i went to the graph in the bottom right and then i went to the chart and fire weather and i clicked the four box mixing height haynes index transition um wind and vent rate. and so i'm looking and uh you know over the next few wind? days um i see you know like tomorrow the wind will be Nine miles an hour humidity, the lowest it gets is 60, almost 60%. No, tomorrow's not a burn day. But if I scroll down, I look at the fire weather on down, Haynes index is a three, which I said last week I would like it to be a four. Um, And then the uh, vent rate, ventilation rate is very low. And uh, so I'm knowing that you know, uh, and then the mixing height is a very you know it's not a very high ceiling, um, and it's a very it's a it's a it's a low ceiling, and my ventilation rate is is very low in miles per hour, so it would be very smoky fire if I attempted it. Um, tomorrow would be an uh, unsuccessful fire. Correct. Yeah. So what so- ideally I'm looking for humidity in the 30s or 40s wind speed 8 to 14 miles an hour, Haynes index of four. And a you know, I'd like to see a, a ceiling height or a mixing height of over 30,000 uh, or th- 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 33,000 feet is what I would like to see it. I'd see, like to see it so I know that smoke's getting out of there, and then of course, a ventilation rate um, being somewhere around three thousand as well. So
2: and I think I think this is the, the other side of, of things that people can um, this is kind of where the common sense kicks in. If you ever have experience in burning, um, you can walk outside and, and physically feel the days that burn. You you know when it comes to if you're looking late for January your February. <laughs> yeah. When yeah exactly when when it's been windy for a couple of days or sun's been out and you're walking and it's just super loud and crunchy. That means that, that the actual fine fuels, the leaves and, and all the, uh, everything else, you know, the leaves that are kind of mulched up underneath, they're going to burn. And, and that means they're dry and ready, crispy for, for action. Um, but you also feel it, like you said, on your lips, right? I mean, you can feel the dryness of the air, your lips get chapped, the breeze um and you can kind of almost feel the the sun on those days too really kind of beating out if you got full sun um those conditions mixed together probably is going to be a really really good fire day but obviously don't just base it off that do your homework know what the weather's going to be like know if there's going to be changes throughout the day before you put fire on the ground but you can tell it when you walk outside what days are going to burn for what sure.
1: Burn. Once you train yourself to look for that and mm-hmm. know, know what you're looking for, you can definitely say, oh, yeah, today's a yep. day for it to burn. That's exactly right. You know, the
2: the other thing that people really get, I want to say, hung up on, and we're, we're going to cover these in, in crazy detail because these are some of the points that Kyle and Frank are going to really hit home and, and talk in detail about. But Different firing techniques that someone could use in the timber, um, you know, backing fire, flanking fire, and stripping fires are all different techniques that someone could utilize. Um, most, you know, it's not very common that a lot of people will use a head fire in their timber, but a backing fire. And I'm kind of describe what that is, and in as layman's terms as possible, um, how someone would go about. utilizing a backing fire in February in a thinned canopy
1: unit. So backing fire um, typically is backing into the wind. So it's burning as it's, and it's moving into the wind. So it's a lot slower fire. Flame heights are a lot smaller, but it's relatively more controlled or gives the impression that it's more under control um, I don't, you know, it can change in a matter of seconds of being a controlled fire versus uncontrolled fire. But that's kind of the idea is that you have a fire that is, let's say, just picture a box and the wind is moving from the west to the east. You light on the east side of the unit and it burns to the west. So it's burning into the wind. That's a backing fire. Um, well,
2: it's It's essentially, think of it like, going against the grain right fire normally would want to be carried either uphill or or with the wind but we're doing the opposite and we're basically utilizing the existing conditions to keep the fire um in control as much as possible a lot of times you're going to use a, a backing fire regardless to some degree on any fire as you're starting it even if you end up doing a ringing fire or a head fire at some point you started with a backing fire as you were putting in, let's say, the black line around the fire.
1: Yeah, and so what I would say, um, this, is where, this is where some confusion may happen, so I'll try to be as clear as possible. Uh, my wife may say that's going to be impossible for me to do, but um, here is, so I described a fire moving from east to west as a backing fire. You can throw that out if there's terrain, because Mm -hmm. terrain overrides the wind, and so especially steeper terrain like here in the Ozark Mountains. So if I light at the bottom of a hill, I'm creating a head fire. If I light at the top of the hill, I'm creating a backing fire. And so that basically, um, because if you light at the bottom of the hill, that fire as it cooks, it's preheating that fuel uphill so it can it can it's move much faster. Drying so everything out. A very dangerous fire is a slope, a west-facing slope, and you light at the bottom of the hill with a west-facing wind, or with a west wind. So you've got the wind and the elevation. Those are fires that are that are very scary, and that's what happens out west a lot. So um, if I'm burning in the timber, and I'm typically trying to shoot for a backing fire, then I'm going to light on the uphill side and let it back down the slopes. Um, I mean,
2: yeah, if you, if you think about it again, it's going against the grain, right? If, if everyone knows heat rises, but, but if I'm starting at the top of the hill and heat is rising, all that heat is going away from the, the fuel that's basically in line to be burned next, which is down the slope. Yeah. So literally it is, it is, in most cases, creeping down the slope. And, and so just to paint the picture let's just say we we just started and we're and we're putting the black line around our fire which is basically starting another fire break and we're letting it burn down away from the fire line so we basically have the five foot of the fire line plus another 10 15 20 yards of a black line into that unit but that 10 to 15 20 yard time frame obviously depends on fuel loads and everything but Let's just say you know it could easily take twenty minutes for it to go that far off off your the, the place you started, the fire break line itself to go twenty yards into the timber. it's It's literally not like this anything that's racing and running across the ground. It is a slow process, um, or can be a slow process to get started and create that backing fire off the line. Um, I think again, a lot of people are like, They're cautious of the fire, which is great thing to be with little experience, but the backing fire tends to be a very slow process because right, we're going against the grain of things. We're going down the slope, but we're also going in or and or I guess to say into the wind. Yep. So what about a flanking fire? What does what
1: does yeah. flanking mean? So it's like a right angle mission. I guess my best way of saying it is it's like the right angle fire, where it's not burning. You're not lighting it into the wind, or so it's gonna burn against the wind or into the wind. It's lighting it perpendicular with the wind, and a lot of times these are used in a in a way to speed up a backing fire or to feed a backing fire more mm-hmm. because flames. Uh, are attracted to flames or flames are attracted to heat. And so if you were to, it's the same kind of concept with a stripping fire when you're trying to attract flames and, and allow them to build up. Um, Because if you light a backing fire and it's moving very slow, like, man, this is just not burning as quickly as I'd like. You can go and light a 30 yard strip um, to try to create a micro, um man what's the word i'm looking for here try to change the atmospheric uh the atmosphere there to where you've c- kind of a micro climate if you will to where that fire senses that other fire and Im- immediately both those flames get bigger because they can sense each other and they rush to each other and that's a way well, to build up build up a fire uh, and 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 burn things that may be burning too slow for your choosing
2: and, and that's the thing of like this is trying to trying to talk and describe something that that physically you cannot see, right? But like when there is fire in the air, it is changing, you know, how oxygen is working there, and oxygen fuels that fire. So when you have flames, and then you then you drop below and and you flank that original fire, those two separate fires react to each other because of. Oxygen, and yeah. now we've created a little bit of a, a, a more intenser situation. Yeah, but we're not we're not going we're not head fire anything. We've yeah. just created an atom more fire it's... in this area to speed up the process, or potentially pull pull that backing fire into a different area.
1: Yeah, so I, I guess I it's like it's like I'll, a
2: magnet. If you will. I haven't
1: described it very clearly yet, so I would say that. Picture you've got that square again. You've got you know uh, a perfect forty-acre unit, and the wind is out of the west again, and you're on the eastern side, and you've ran a backing fire. So it is just slowly creeping through the um, through the timber, moving west into the wind, and it's moving too slow. So I immediately go, you know what? I need to speed things up. And and we have typically the one we use more is a stripping fire, which we'll say here in a second. But flanking fire would be like, all right, the heck with this, and I grab my drip torch and I walk straight into the wind for thirty yards, and I do that, r- lighting straight towards the wind. So my fire moves off, and it's instead of moving, instead of moving um, parallel with my parallel with my uh, backing fire that I lit, it starts to spread off going north and south, and then it can catch that wind and head fire a little bit, but doesn't really have the, the full force or the full line east to west or north to south to really strip back and slam into my backing fire. So it's a way to speed up a, the process, yeah. It was and, a single line yeah,
2: that you pulled just, further off of a – of basically your your backing fire would have been in north and south that yep. came off.
0: The east yep. line, right? Yep. But what
2: you did was pull a single line, drop fuel and flame, and went due west, right against your backing
1: fire. Yeah, it's a little bit more severe than a than a backing fire, but it's not quite, and it's nowhere near as much a, uh, severe as a head fire. Correct. So it may correct. it may gain a little speed, but it's not going to gain full speed like a head fire because it just is not. It does not have the the angles correctly correct to to cause a a head fire
2: absolutely you you described i went on a straight line west in a single line and so that was into the wind but if you think about it remember we talked about a heading fire that would be going um with the wind but but if he walked from east to west dropping fire in a single line what is it's already black ahead of that fire yeah. When he stopped. So what? It, it's not like there can be much of a head fire because it's already burned because he was walking from east to west. So hopefully people are kind of picturing the, these directions and painting this picture in their head. Um, but that should explain as to why it doesn't just rip and roar through there. Well, because it's already black because that's he started in that direction. Yep. As he
1: walked. Yep. And then, um, uh, of course, a stripping fire would be. I'm running, I've got that same box, that 40-acre woodlot, and I light on the east side, and I'm backing it to the west with a west wind. I would walk in 10 yards from my backing fire and run another strip just exactly the way I lit it off the line to where those two fires suck together. Um, Yep. And so I am creating a little head fire, but there's not enough space for the fuel to really build up or the flames to really get high and, and cause problems. So. Um that is you're you're dropping
2: below a big black line and then just letting it move advanced ten yards at a
1: higher rate
2: to your black line.
1: Your your fire
2: is meeting fire.
1: Yeah. And that's pretty much the main four that we use. So
2: and and that's um you know to to speed up a timber burn, and again I don't want to at all play down fire, but we commonly use the stripping fire, um, mm-hmm. to speed things up because sometimes it can be a long process. Yeah. Um, and, and so we'll definitely use this on, on slopes, um, to, yeah. to get things quite a bit faster, yeah. um, speed up the process. Been we might here be all day. Burn... Daddy's got to <laughs> eat. <laughs> it might, might be uh, burning whether it's multiple units or it's just a bigger unit, um, yeah, that, that definitely is the goal is to um, try and get things done just a little little bit faster. Here, here's yeah. another situation, Adam. Let's say let's say we've got a, a fire unit, let's go back to that forty acre <sighs> unit. Um, and let's just say in the very center of that forty acres, we had a nice larger ridge that went out from the south, headed north got almost to that that northern boundary line someone says okay there's my 40 acres how do i burn that in the timber like how would you approach that situation from an ignition standpoint if you oh. had that east and west
0: yeah. excuse me that uh, west yeah. to
2: east wind you wouldn't go and start on that very far east side how would you attack that by with with the addition
1: of now we've got topography playing a role here absolutely so are you saying that, you know, if if I was to look at it, there's a one main ridge and then the yep. other two, like the one main ridge runs north to south or south to north right out of the center of it. Right and, in the center. And so that's the highest point. The east and mm-hmm. west line are not very, uh, they're, they're the there is no elevation there. Correct. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're,
2: they would be even equal. Let's just say there's a creek drainage on both sides. The yep. east and west line are creek drainage, same elevation. Yeah. But a yep. big old, kind of a big ridge in the center.
1: I would probably would you start, do? you know, for me personally, I'd probably start um, running a line. I'd run a backing fire along my east side just because I want to always start on the very furthest point of of uh, of where the the fires the fire unit. So, just in case something happens, I don't have to worry about fire slamming into a line uh, that's got no blacking. And, and so I would probably start there. Ideally, there's two lighters, two, two guys running drip torches, and uh, they're, running, they're running on the radio. And so one guy lights that east line, and he says, okay, I'm halfway done. And the guy on the top of the ridge lights and lets it back down that east-facing slope. Um, towards that other, uh, towards that other um, eastern boundary where the, where it's already been lit. So by the time the guy finishes up on the ridge, the guy on the east side's already knocked out the black line on the eastern side of the fire unit. Mm-hmm. So it would take those flames a while to back down that slope. Let's just say it's like at my family farm, it's about two two hundred fifty uh, foot elevation change. It's going to take a while to back down that slope. And it's going to take a while for that fire to creep across that flat ground. And so, ideally, you time it to where it backs down the slope and hits the bottom and starts And then about that time, the two lines merge together. At the same time, you're going to have that same fire that you lit across the spine of that ridge. It's going to be backing down that west-facing slope as well. And Mm -hmm. so... Um, the whole time you've got guys on the North line, guys on the East line and they're watching. And so you could, that guy could easily turn and go, all right. When, uh, he walked from the South to the North, lighting the spot on that Ridge, he turned and went West and kind of started lighting along that Northern boundary, headed back West to kind of do a flanking fire. And, um, you know, he's not going to get carried away. He's going to go 20 yards, and he's going to monitor flame heights and the intensity of the fire. And if it goes pretty slow, he may walk another 30 yards, and he may say, okay, you know, this is behaving really well. I'm not damaging any trees. It's gaining some speed, but it's not killing anything or hurting anything. And he continues to progress 20 foot and 30 foot and on to the bottom of the hill, and he watches and says, okay, that, that's pretty stinking good and uh, he's radioing back to the other guy, and the other guy says, okay, that looks really good, everything looks like it's going well, and when he gets from the north to the south line, the very southeast corner of the unit, he could run and and go along that southern boundary headed towards the spine of that ridge. And ultimately, uh, when he gets done with that, somebody could go back and and light that northeast part of that unit, and you've kind of created a backward C shape, and you just – You've got fire in many places, multiple places, I should say. The spine of the ridge is backing down the slope, the east slope, and the the west slope, and the fire is going along the eastern boundary. And everybody's lost, but hopefully you visionaries, (laughs) you men of vision, uh, like Captain Woodrow F. Call has, you men of vision have seen that perfectly. Cause I did well, in my head. I, I, yeah, I, I'm
2: right there <laughs> with you. But but hopefully, again, it's just you know, so, someone is like, oh, okay, paint the picture, or, or hey, let me restart that and, and try try that illustration again in my head. But regardless, there there's um there's obviously certain certain ways when we throw topography into the mix that you would you would change um the course of, of lighting necessarily, but it does. It's important to realize that topography does um trump win but you still want to protect your boundary on that with a westerly wind still hit that east side first off um yep so an- another um big question that people have is what should i expect like when i am burning the timber let's say i'm just uh, your, your typical kind of oak hickory forest um midwest mid-atlantic um, kind of southern up to Ohio, let's just say the middle band of the us. When I'm burning timber, what's a flame height that I should relatively expect when i'm when I'm burning
1: under the conditions that you mentioned before? Uh, anywhere from six to sixteen inches is what I would yep. shoot for twenty inches and under. Um, you know, if I see anything get when I start seeing it peak at about twenty, I say, okay, whatever I just did, I want to make sure I don't get too carried away with that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you're getting that, I, I think that magic window is anywhere from uh, 10 to 20 inches. I, I was going to say that, that 12 to 18 inch flame height
2: is is going to be pretty dang good, even yeah. keel throughout the whole deal. And, and that is another thing. You're going to hit pockets where, you know, you got a little bump in the elevation or, you know, something changes or you hit a pocket where a tree fell um, and you've got brambles and stuff, and sure, it's going to jump up and it's going to, you know, kind of peak. But we're, we're talking overall the course of things. You know, when you're backing off of your line or it's just backing down a slope, that that 10, 12, 18 inches is really where you want to be, kind of shoot for. Um, let's say that be your gauge how things are burning, and that kind of different determines. Um, your conditions too because if yeah. you have if you have cloud cover come over and you've got 18 inch flame height and it was you know super sunny well, it's probably gonna fall to like eight inches yeah. and sit there and just not fizzle out or anything but just really just settle down yeah and the sun pops back out and it's just gonna increase it up again yeah um, so those those little changes in in the the weather from you know 12 o'clock in the afternoon to three and four drastically you, you can see it the fire react to those changes and that's i a, think it's
1: cool that's a great point about about that uh, the changes in cloud cover because let's picture you're you're burning and it and it is kind of partly cloudy so you've kind of stepped up and got a little bit more aggressive with your lighting just to get the fire hot enough to really carry like you want and all of a sudden the sun pops out that's when you should buckle up and say oh, let's tone it down and really watch. Like, all right, blow the drip torches out. Let's watch this fire. Um, Because that's when you can, in my experience, that's when spots happen. That's when snags start lighting up. That's when things happen that you go up, Raggy, um, because we need to really make sure we don't do anything. And, And that's typically when I see a lot of people make errors is you get aggressive because conditions aren't great. And then all of a sudden snap your fingers and the conditions are great but you've litten far too much that you can handle, and and you're going, uh-oh. Well, and, and Get ready that's to jump why, some gullies, boys.
2: Why, as a the person igniting with the drip torch, it's not keep your head down and just walk, like oh. walk along the fire break. You, you really yeah. need to be aware of your surroundings and aware of the environment that you're burning. You need to look and see which way the fire is going, the flame heights, the wind, wind direction just completely changes things. It's going to blows. You're going to notice it cause it's going to blow smoke in your face or go to blow away. But yeah. as you're lighting, as you're stripping out additional um, places or are going along your fire breaks. That is your job, you know? And, and I think it is people, I don't want to say that's necessarily being careless, but they just essentially will bite off more than, than what they can essentially protect along a fire break and watch. Closely, and and when the wind kicks up or the sun pops back out, yeah, you might have um, a, a leaf or you know an ember pop across the line, and you can't run back 200 yards around the corner, and, and you can't monitor that. So yeah. so you need to take things slow. And I think again, it's just people get in trouble when they get cocky with it and are and aren't aware of their surroundings, and and basically bite off more than what they can chew. Yeah, and. That's when things get get questionable. But if you're cautious, if you're paying attention to these details and, and little tiny changes, then then you're – like I say, you'll be safe. But you're doing what you should as, as someone who's igniting um, and watching this fire. And, and again, this goes back to the communication standpoint too we talked about last week from having head boss – that's the person who has the most fire experience and can say, Hey, all you other people out there light stop. We've had this change. Like they need to be very clear and communicate that to to everybody else, um, of, of what's going on. Be aware of your surroundings. Hey, notice this, you know, sun's popping back out. Be careful kind of thing. Yep. Absolutely. Um, the other big question is fire interval. Yep. And, this is opening up a a potentially bigger discussion. Um, Obviously, the fire return interval and the timing of your fires, of the the growing season versus dormant season, really determines what type of plant communities are going to grow um, and what
1: your fuel loads may be like. So let's just say... And talk about your goals, because this is where it really gets critical.
2: And, and we prescribe different fire intervals all the time to, to, to different people. Um, you know, last or two weeks ago, we were in Iowa, and I went straight to Georgia. And then you were in Indiana the week before, and next week you'll be in Georgia. So it's like when we start traveling and we're looking at different regions, and then we're looking at different um, – Plant communities that we'll expect to come back in each of these regions, and then how we want a certain portion of the property to look. Our intervals are going to change drastically.
1: Yep, I I think from from one region to another. One of the big things would be have to identify: is this a unit that I'm growing timber? Because Mm -hmm. if I'm trying to grow timber, not just for myself, but for my kids or grandkids. Then my interval is going to be backed off, not two to four years, but sure. five to ten, maybe mm-hmm. maybe seven to fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I think that's where a lot of guys may, especially I think so many guys are miss are messing up if they've got closed canopy hardwoods and they're burning on a two to four year interval. Yeah, and they're expecting of you know that that. Well, I don't have the oak regen. I wonder why. Well, first off, you're growing in a sh- it's shady conv- environment. It's closed canopy, so it's not great for oak regeneration. And you're burning. What few yeah. make it through, you burn them up. I, I was out of sight the other day,
2: um, in in kind of south well central western uh, Georgia, and yeah. and there was a beautiful piece of hardwoods. Um, I mean some some really great trees in it, but it had had not experienced fire in a while it was a hundred percent closed canopy um in this in this specific drainage but what was getting um regenerated was tulip poplar and sweet gum oh and and no none of the red oaks none of the white oaks were were um regenerating period oh. uh and it was it was it was wide open the trees themselves were there's some you know 28 inch dbh wide i mean just straight as an arrow beautiful looking trees but it's like i asked the guy. was like you know this looks um air quoting pretty and these trees look pretty healthy but um what do you notice or what do you not notice it took us a while i was like how many sweet gum saplings do you see where are all your oaks what's the future and i think that's that is a big question it goes back to your goals What's the purpose of you using fire in a specific unit? And then, then you you will understand, or that fire return interval will become more clear to you. But in that specific site, closed canopy, no fire, there wasn't oaks coming back. It was sweet gums. Yep. And we see it all too all too often.
1: Yep. Yep. Species that are that can grow much faster, uh, and and outcompete. End up taking over if the if the intervals are wrong, and you know that that goes with almost every single thing we recommend. Is there's a lot of really good intentions and really yes. good plans that are sixty to seventy percent correct, and or sixty to seventy percent effective, but it's that thirty to forty percent which is the the game changer, that mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. difference in being mediocre and phenomenal. And yes. and I think so many times, like, I, I really think that's a big part of our business is trying to to get that additional 30, 40 percent where it's like you were doing pretty good, but you weren't really making it awesome. Well, and I think that's a, a fantastic point. I feel
2: like this is between, let's say, doing FSI or cutting the timber and, and then burning, um, there's a lot of people out there who... I won't say fall short, but they just don't quite do the project to the degree that they need to do it. And it's like, well, I'm using prescribed fire on my property or I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of uh, chainsaw work. But it's always like, yeah, but but the result is what I'm interested in. I'm glad that you're utilizing some of these techniques. But but when we go and we walk or, we, or you know, I ask you about what it is you're trying to create, and then we go and walk. The, the site didn't get there. We didn't do enough. We didn't add enough sunlight. We didn't cut hard enough or, or you're burning too much in an area. And that can obviously be the case, but it's almost like just because you're utilizing some great tools doesn't mean you're using them necessarily right. And yeah. and we could tell because the site isn't responding the way we want it to, or the habitat, the plant communities aren't, aren't coming back or, growing to the degree we might have you know, let's just say a sprig or two of of little blue stem. where really we wanted 20 percent of this pocket to be blue stem brand you know then then of course have the brambles and other shrubs but we just don't have we just don't have the sunlight or, or yeah. you're burning too much whatever it may be yeah. but it, it seems like that just is often often the case with even again seasoned um habitat managers or, or, or folks who are doing great, great techniques, just potentially need that additional fine tuning t- tweaking.
1: Yeah. It's the fine tune tweaking that can really just is, is, oh, that's
2: when we've seen, we, man, we've seen
1: things just absolutely take off
2: from it. Yeah. And and, and it's not like, well, Oh, you know, I'll go back to a, a consultation that, um, Kyle Frank and I were on in, in Florida <laughs> fantastic group of guys down there doing a lot of really good things but literally one of the big suggestions was changing the fire interval and then but more importantly there was was changing the timing um and kind of restructuring how they went about burning and placing priority in some areas and and, you know differences there and i I fully believe that that is going to Really, take that place, which is a extremely special place, yeah. to something greater and beyond.
1: Well, um, I'll give you another it, one. It, that was simple. That yeah, was really simple. How many times have we seen? You know, in the last few years, it seems like more and more people are doing these micro clear cuts and bedding thickets, and they mm-hmm. go in and they're like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in a pocket, you know, just a little ways away from my, uh, from my food plot, and that's gonna be it." But they don't cut enough. And so what they do is they cut in and they say, wow, it's really thick and nasty in there. But they left too many trees standing. They hinge cut too many trees and not flush cut enough trees. And they either, if they did all hinge cuts, they made it too thick. So deer only using the perimeter. And in five years, a lot of those hinge cuts are going to grow back up and be out of reach. Or they cut not enough and they left too many trees standing and they get this huge influx of brambles. And depending on where you're at, it may be gooseberry or black raspberry, or in many cases, multi rose. And yes. they're like, "Well, all I did, all I'm creating are briar patches." That's because you didn't promote enough sunlight, and so yes. you had good intentions, but you missed it. You you missed the mark, and that's not not a burn on you. It's just speaking advice on you got to make sure you do it right if you're really expecting phenomenal goals. Yeah, Or phenomenal and I, results, I should say. Yeah.
2: What, what was that Blackberry patch or the Black Raspberries or Gooseberry or Buck Brush that came back in because you're not getting enough light? Is it better? Is it denser? Uh, does it offer more cover? Yes, yeah. it does. But on a, on, a, on a scale from a 1 to 10, let's just say or, – or let's just give it a grade, a school grade, right, from um, A to an F of, of implementation – I'll I'll give it a, a C or a D plus, not yeah. because I don't like you, but because literally we've seen in all these places what can happen. And yeah. it is much, it is more superior, but really you think about it, It's like, what, what does it take? If you get a 70% on a quiz, right? You got 70% right, but really to take it from, Average to great is only 30% difference. Yep. And it's that 30% difference that really makes it that much more amazing. You did good work, but it isn't great work. And that's, uh. a, that's a smaller margin than getting it to good, right? Yep. So, yep. I know C's get degrees, but, man, everyone's looking for the A's. Yep. So. Yeah, man. An- one other quick thing, I, I, I think – people often worry with is the size of the burn they think they have to go huge big scale um to make impacts and and to get started and you know a three acre burn maybe um you know something that that seems daunting to you um well if that's daunting to you then burn an acre burn half acre do something but i would rather
1: somebody burn Three acres here and a and five acres there and a six acres over there, rather oh, than burn one twenty acre unit. Yeah, because uh, I mean, it, as long as you can get it spaced out, and that way we know that and and there's a lot of a lot of good things that a lot of research pr- that you know the Mississippi State's done the bow range burning, um, and just, then just
2: recently out of out of Auburn that there was there was research done. <laughs> That if you reduce the canopy by 30% and then you apply prescribed fire, a thinning of 30%, that's that's really, really easy. So you have 70% canopy, 30% sunlight, you increase the amount of deer food per acre by 500%. Yeah. That ought to get your attention. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, and we, that's what we talked about early on is like, you have to have sunlight. Is this is not necessary in an either or situation. If you want results, you've got to feed the system. And that is with sunlight. So a combination of cutting to some degree and burning is phenomenal results. For phenomenal. sure. For sure. So. so I don't know, I don't know, I think that's a pretty dang good wrap up on on burning in the timber, kind of a roundabout way to say. That's essentially
1: what we're looking for how to do it um and and hitting a lot of the key points. You got anything else to add there? No man, not at all. Uh I think uh, hopefully there's some guys amping up and ramping up and getting ready for prescribed fire. Probably I uh, will we just got tagged today but one of our clients here locally that is burning. So I know there's some guys doing it and I, and I I'm enjoying seeing how many people are new to it that are getting out and doing it and and having yes. fun with it. So it's very we'll encouraging.
2: Say- I know for a fact that both of the sites that we're going to, both Michigan and Alabama, either have burned in the past year or will be burning probably before we get there.
1: Awesome. So
2: there will be sites of multiple years of regeneration, fresh. I know at Alabama there was a growing season burn done in twenty twenty, believe it was September, October time frame. So by July It'll change it'll blow your mind. So yeah. if you guys want to see this, come see us at the workshops.
1: Yep. Awesome. So, well Matt. Appreciate it guys. Yep. We'll uh, we'll talk to you all you to everyone next week. That's right. Yep. Yep. See you. Guys.